So quick story time here as we start off the morning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was with my wife. We went to Costco. Love Costco, but at this time of year, Costco tries to tap into our inner sucker, right? Here's what I mean by that. You walk in there, what are they selling you? Grills. They're selling you flowers. They're selling you like outdoor patio furniture. They make you think spring is here, right? That's what they do. And so my wife started getting sucked into this a little bit. She's like, we should buy, buy these flowers. I said, no, you should not buy these flowers. Snow is not done falling yet. She's like, no, that can't be true. I say we buy the flowers. I'm like, no, we're not buying the flowers. I'm telling you, winter is still here. And then what do we wake up to on Saturday? Snow, man. So at my house, like three to four inches of snow. I'm up in the hills a little bit, right? So lots of snow. And I'm like, this is not spring. This is winter. These are lies, all of them. And then this morning I got up early, started coming into town, and, and it started to snow again at my house a little bit. I'm like, you got to stop this. Now, I love the snow, but I'm ready for spring, all right? And you'll notice in the room it's a little chilly. We just brought winter in here today too. So oh, why not do that? So I know you're not here for that story time, but I want to remind you that it is for us kind of story time, all right? And, and what I mean by this is whether we realize it or not, every human being who has ever entered into this realm, this planet, uh, they are born into a story. We're born into an epic, a saga of epic proportions. It's a story of good versus evil, light versus darkness, darkness, death versus life itself. And in light of that, what it means for us who are aware of this story, this unfolding narrative of God, what it means is that it matters how we live. It matters what we do. It matters how we act and interact with the world that we inhabit. And that's why this whole series is titled Divided We Stand. It's because we're aware of this saga. We're aware of the narrative of flourishing and decay and how God wants to change the environment by using his people to bring change to that environment. This is why we want to stand divided, not divided against our world, but divided out for the sake of our world, not by falling in love with our world, but rather bringing the love of Christ to the world. That's the heartbeat that we have. And part of the reason we have this heartbeat is because when we think about John, there was this moment in time where he decides to grab a quill and press it right there to parchment, and to remind us of these realities of the story, to remind us of the challenges that we face and inspire us to be a unique and distinct kind of community so we can go out and then bless whatever community we find our lives are lived in, to bring transformation. But to bring transformation because we have been transformed by the one that is transforming everything. And so in John's bloggy letter... Today, we're going to see three ingredients when it comes to that story. Because when you read epic stories, you see there's always these certain underlying factors and truths that are important to kind of be grounded in. And today, what John is going to do, he's going to give us warning, he's going to give us promise, and he's going to give us reminder. Warning, promise, and reminder. But as we get underway, I want to remind you that we have an app. 
And in our app, there are notes that you can follow along with today, blanks that you can fill in, and you can save that so you can go back to it later if you need to be reminded or warned or kind of think about promises that God has made. And so if you want to follow along that way, that would be fantastic. But as we get underway, I also want to pray for all of us today so we can really have our hearts and minds attuned to what Christ wants to do, and we can hear that voice of His Spirit in our lives. And so if you would join me, that would be fantastic. Jesus, uh, we are mindful of you, we are needy of you, and we want to be used by you, right? We don't want to waste our lives just kind of doing ho-hum things and just kind of living day-to-day for ourselves or for ease or for pleasure or for goals. We want to do things in such a way that we honor you and know you more and bring you to the world around us and that we are change agents of your beauty, your life, and your love in this world. And that's been so much about John's heart, right? Your love, your light, your life breaking into a darkened world and and bringing illumination, bringing a, a sense of reconnection to us and our maker. And so we ask today that you will uh, give us some inspiration, you will remind us of the things we need to be warned about, and that we will be mobilized and galvanized to be the kind of people you want us to be as we leave this place today. That your mission would be our heartbeat, and that your love for the world around us would be a, a love that is found in our lives and spills out of us into the lives of others. So we ask you to teach us and guide us and show us your perfect heart and your good grace today. It's in your awesome name we pray. Amen. So, this book right here reveals this epic story that I was talking about. It's God's saga. And uh, throughout millennia, uh, the human race has been winding through this story. It's like winding through a forest of redwoods, right? And so you go around this turn and down that bend and around this valley and up this hill, and you're never quite sure what's going to come exactly next. But you, you really understand ultimately where the story is going. You know the concluding narrative of the story, and you know the God who is with you as you're traveling through that story. One of the great things about following Christ is we're allowed to at least see that template. We're encouraged and inspired by those kinds of truths. Now here's what is true about all sagas like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, every great saga you can think of. Uh, There's certain features that are true, right? For one, there is always a hero. And the hero is the one that brings liberation and light to the darkness. What you equally have is the anti-hero. They're the one that brings bondage and decay into the environment. And then you have the population that is always torn between those extremes, that is caught in the center of the battle and in the middle of the story and these opposing factions. Now, when it comes to the Bible, what we know about this book is that Jesus is the hero. Right? He is hands down the hero. He is the one that brought liberation into the world. And he does it in this incredible way where he doesn't come as, again, this mighty conqueror. He comes as a servant. He comes as a slave. He takes on human form, takes on the weakest form of human form, literally just says, I'm going to come under all of you and lift you up by my sacrifice. Like, that is a bold, bold hero. But that's the hero that he is. And when we read through the Bible, we see that he defeated sin, he defeated death, and he actually defeated the antihero, the enemy himself. In fact, even last week when we were in 1 John, remember he says, hey, I'm writing to you who are kind of new to the faith. 
you have outdone and had won your battle with the evil one. Like he lets you know that as if you're a newbie, if you're brand new to this Jesus following thing, you've already beat the one who's against you. It's because Jesus beat him for you and you were in him. What is also true when we read through the Bible is that there's still kind of this insurgency, this remaining residue, this continued campaign to try to force decay into the world. Even though Jesus is bringing flourishing and making all things new, and he's on the move and his kingdom's touching lives and the values of the kingdom are moving people to bring change to the world around them, there's still this tension. Now John still celebrates, hey, he's defeated. But in the same vein, there is still work to do, and there's still a risk involved with this anti-hero that wants to undo what Christ has done. And so with that, if you're taking notes this morning, it's the first point in your notes that John's going to leap into, and it's his warning. And his warning is the problem of antichrists. Notice I didn't say antichrist, I said antichrists, because that's what John says, verse 18 of chapter 2 in 1 John. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Now, just as a fun little quiz, because I know a lot of you are Bible readers, Bible studiers, I want you to think right now, all the places in the Bible where this idea of Antichrist, the Antichrist, comes up. Just start rifling through your mind the different places. Maybe you're thinking, well, he's in the book of Daniel, right? Because that's an end times book. And he's in the book of Revelation because that's an end times book. And there's places in Matthew and Mark and Luke where Jesus talks about the end of time. First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. You, you can think about these passages, some stuff maybe in 2 Peter. But here's the fun fact. This word antichrist only comes up four times in your entire Bible. And every time is only in 1 John and once in 2 John. You're like, you're like, no, man, I'm telling you, it's in Revelation. Right now, you're even grabbing your Bible app. I'm going to check to see if Matt is right. I'm going to see Antichrist. Where do we find him? You don't find him in Revelation. Don't find him in Thessalonians. Don't find him in Daniel. Only John taps this word, right? Now, that's not to say that there isn't this figure down the road that is the son of lawlessness or, you know, the, the man of lawlessness or these other labels, but, but John's the only one that kind of jumps this word. And as he does so, it doesn't seem that he just is thinking strictly about this soul apocalyptic figure head that, that we always think about with the end of time, but rather he says there have been many antichrists. Right? Isn't that what he says? There have been many. There's an S on the end. And they've come, and they're going to continue to come. And we always have to be aware that they are coming, right? And so he has something in mind with this. He, he wants it to, to ground in this reality that we all have to be aware of, we all have to face, and realize that any one of us are going to have contact with an antichrist at some point in our life. In fact, there's the reality that over the course of time, if you're running around in the church for any length of time, you might actually go to church with an antichrist, if you will. Because John means something by this particular terminology. So to kind of get a handle on this, how it's more of the spirit of a thing than the thing itself, I want to kind of help you understand the difference between antichrist and false Christ. Because Jesus talks about this too. 
right? He warns his followers, there's going to be those who come along and they're going to claim to be Christ, but they're a false Christ. This is different than an antichrist. And so a false Christ would be someone who claims to be the Christ in place of the true Christ, who is Jesus, right? So they go, Jesus isn't the chosen one. Jesus isn't the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. Or that person over there, they're the chosen one, not Jesus. That's a false Christ, somebody that wants to take the place of Christ. But that isn't necessarily an antichrist. What makes an antichrist or antichrists so unique is that they take on a little bit of a different tone. They claim the true Jesus, but deny things about him as the Christ. Right? So this is altogether different. Uh, the false Christ danger is kind of an external threat. Somebody outside of the church claims to be the true Christ. But an antichrist is a threat inside a community of faith because they go, hey, I believe in this historical figure named Jesus. I believe there was this guy that walked the earth but then in this, they begin to tamper with the definitions of who he is. They begin to rewrite his nature or person or words. So it's still a figurehead named Jesus, but they alter the theology and the doctrines around him. So then, according to John, an antichrist is anyone who says Jesus is not the Christ— Anyone who denies the Father and the Son, that person's also an antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. All right? So a couple of things about this. First of all, good news, anybody can be an antichrist. Right? It's like the door's open. He's like, you want to be anything you want in your life? You can be an antichrist if you want to be an antichrist. All you have to do is alter, change, rewrite, or rework things about Jesus. And, and you can enter into that space. That's why many had gone out, according to John, right? Just redefine or deny things about him that are true. But the other thing about this that's a little bit tougher is that we're not certain exactly how these people were antichristing, all right? And, and the reason I say that is because as John writes his blog— these people that are reading it and hearing it, they know exactly the problems. Because it's been in their churches. It's been people that they once had a brotherhood with, a sisterhood with, who have then, then gone off the rails, started making amendments to the person of Jesus, and they're going out, and the church is fractured, and people are breaking off their relationships. So they're painfully aware of how this is taking place. But as readers, John doesn't fully build out with the details that we would like exactly how they were doing this. We know that they were saying Jesus isn't the Christ, but in what way were they saying that? And we know that they were denying the Father and the Son, but again, we don't know exactly how they were doing that. Were they saying, well, Jesus isn't really directly God's Son, He's an adoptive Son, something else. We don't know exactly how they were doing it. We know that they were somehow denying only the Son, right? And somehow in the process it was denying the Father, but again, the details are murky. However, if we kind of expand out of this direct section— and we just look at the overall kind of tapestry of the New Testament, we see that there are three ways the denial seems to happen. And we want to take note of these three ways because John is trying to warn us, hey man, don't let this happen to you, and be aware that some people are going to try to drag you into one of these three things. The first is what we've kind of hinted at, which is denying knowledge about Jesus. That seems to be the first way. In fact, 
in the next little letter that John writes, 2 John chapter 7, he gets more specific. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. These are the ones who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. That means there are many the Antichrists again. But notice what John says, right? He says, there are some that just don't believe that Jesus was really human. So if you actually look at John's writings, in the Gospel of John, there was one problem about Jesus. The religious leaders, they looked at Jesus and they say, hey, we think he's a man, a good man, maybe even a prophet of God, but he's not God. Like when Jesus was teaching, they loved it. As soon as Jesus in John chapter 8 says, oh, and by the way, I, I, I am, I'm God, I'm the one you've been worshiping all this time, they flip out, they want to kill him, why? No, you're only a man, you can't be God. That's the gospel of John. But in the letters of John, the problem becomes different, and this group of people says, you know what? No, we think Jesus was God. But God can't take on a body. God can't come in human form. That would be too weak. So they said there was this sense of perception of Jesus being human, but he wasn't. He was only divine. And, and this is then sort of the problem of, of how this rewriting of the knowledge of Jesus can happen. You can either have a view of Jesus that's super, super high, he's only God, or a view that's super, super low, he's only man, but that's not the true view. See, the true view is that Jesus is both 100% in this beautiful kind of bound-up form that we don't fully understand. Like, I don't get how you can be fully God, fully man, but we have to embrace that and understand that. And for the first several hundred years of the church, that was the thing they continued to maintain and fight about. As soon as somebody came in and said, he's not God or he's not man, boom, they said, that's the heresy. So we have to keep these things balanced. And there's beauty in the balance. I, I can't help but sometimes be truly overwhelmed. Just, and I'm not Mr. Emotional all the time, but when I contemplate the idea of all the ways God could solve the human problem, that God would become a human being and suffer alongside of us, struggle with us, die for us, right? Going from lofty to so lowly, that, that should just have us undone in our thinking because that is an incredible idea that he indwells both equally simultaneously for our good. He valued us so much, he took on both of these natures combined. See, that is a powerful idea. And so John is like, man, this is the big idea we cannot lose. And if you elevate one or elevate the other or reduce one or reduce the other, you're losing who Christ is. You're losing the wonder of what the incarnation is all about. And that is Antichrist. The second way is a denial of the commands from Jesus. This is a way it can, he can be denied. Titus chapter 1. He says, Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Such people claim to know God, but they deny him. By the way they live. Now, I, I want to give an encouragement because I know there's some maybe in the room or watching online that are more of a tender spirit, right? And, and you're always worrying or wondering, am I saved? Do I really know him? Because I do these things and I blow it sometimes and I make mistakes. We all do. 
We all cross lines we shouldn't cross. We miss the marks that are set. We are all frail and feeble. And that's why John reminds us, hey, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Man, just confess. He's faithful and just to forgive. But that disposition that says, oh, I did something wrong and I feel awful about it and I want to make it right with God, that's a really healthy place to be. This is not the people in Titus 1. That's not their space. Their space is, I believe in God, but there's nothing godly about me. I'm a Christian, but I have no real Christ to show for it in my life. I believe the Bible's God's book. I just don't read it or do it. Right? Like that kind of person is this Titus 1 kind of person, and that's a functional denial. You may speak Christ with your mouth, but your heart is far from him, and Jesus talks about that. And so that's kind of that second form of just everyday practical denial that can happen over long terms and and kind of a deep embeddedness. But then there's a third form of denial, and that's denying that you follow Jesus at all. And, And what I mean by that is not in here. See, in here we're like, oh no, I follow Jesus. Oh man, that song was so good. Oh brother, sister, my heart is so full of the love of God, right? But then we go out into the world and we deny him out there. Right, Because we go, hey man, we live in the Pacific Northwest And if you're an open public follower of Jesus You may not get a raise, you may not get a promotion You may be looked at as a little bit weird So you just suppress that, you stuff that part Right, That's that risk of denial Now I want to be clear, does that mean uh, We can't sometimes part ways Or have some distance from other Christians Where we go, oh man, they really seem to give Jesus a bad name I think that's fine I mean, I do think there are times where you're like I'm not denying Christ by saying Those ones are crazy over there In fact, if anything, sometimes it's an act of fidelity I'm loyal to Jesus, I think that's a little crazy So I want to acknowledge, that's crazy But I'm saying it's crazy because I'm loyal to what I see in the person of Christ I'm loyal to what I see in this person revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John That changed the world And I'm proud of him, I stand with him I'm one with him, right? See, this is how we stand divided Different It's that we affirm the person of Christ, the words of Christ, the supremacy and centrality of Christ with our very lives. What had happened in John's context is that some bounced out of this, right? And so he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So these individuals, as they began to kind of split up Jesus into like this, don't like that, affirm this, deny that, as they did that splitting, there was a splitting again in the context of their fellowship, their community of faith. And here's the thing, we can kind of read this and go, oh, so the ones that started altering Jesus split, and that's just what happens sometimes. But I can't help but read that with my own experiences and go, that's a heartbreaking thing. Right? Nothing's more heartbreaking than when you've had belonging and now there's this break and it feels like betrayal. Right? These people that you loved, you did life with, you, you, you maybe even suffered with at some level, when they depart, man, it's really, really hard. And, and, and again, just for a moment of just my own transparency, and I want to be clear right now what I'm not saying and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about the pain of that departure. I'm not saying that everybody then then departs Redemption Church is an antichrist. I, like, I'm going to see people like tweeting that. Matt said everybody who's ever left Redemption is an antichrist. That's why you left. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. But, but I know the feel of 
when people leave. Now, people can leave for really great reasons, like God's called them to another thing, or they've moved away, or whatever else. But there are times sometimes, too, when people leave, and they're just mad, and they don't talk to you, and they just leave. And all of a sudden, you're like, they went somewhere, and you reach out to them, and they don't want to talk. You're like, I don't know what happened. And it can be heartbreaking. Or sometimes, even in my own world, I've received an email that says, Matt, you believe X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, A, you're telling me what I believe. You're not asking me what I believe. And if you ask me, I'd tell you that's not what I believe. But it's just kind of like, here's the indictment, and we've left, you know? And it's hard. And it's hard for me sometimes because I find that probably more often than not, I'm the cause of people's departures because my big fat mouth and I say wacky things sometimes, right? But what I also find when that happens is there's a whole bunch of people left over going, but they left me too, right? Like, yeah, Matt, you say some things, maybe they're a little crazy sometimes, but I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. These were my friends. We were doing life together and suddenly they're just off to another thing. So these departures can be heartbreaking. Now, in this context for John, there was, there was clear reason where had they stayed, it would have brought more problems. But even if they were leaving and they were wrong in their thoughts, I know it's still painful in the relationship, right? And then there is that category of people that actually are breaking rank. And, and we're seeing that more and more in American society, right, where people are leaving the church— they're leaving, whether it be non-denominational or kind of more mainline, organized religion in general. They're just kind of deconstructing, not reconstructing. They're saying, we're punching out. We're really finished with it, whatever else. Some are still wanting to keep Jesus. They're just done with the, the organized side of it. Others are done with all of it and everything else. It's just so hard. And sometimes as that's happening, you could even begin to wonder as an individual, like, who's next? Who's going to bounce next for whatever set of reasons? And is there going to be anybody in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years to fill the space, this building we're putting on 203? Is there going to be anybody left? Is there hope? And John's like, there is. Yes, there are antichrists that come and go and threaten and break your heart and mess with fellowship, and they are a risk, but there's something more powerful than antichrist, and it's the second thing in his notes. It's the promise, and the promise is the power of anointing. Yes, antichrists do what they do, but the anointing is powerful. So he's talked about those who have left. He says, but those who have stuck around, you're not like that. For the Holy One has given you his spirit. Literally, uh, anointing is the word that's used there in the original language. In some versions say anointing. The New Living translates it to spirit because the anointing is the spirit. So it's an accurate way of saying this. And he says, because he's given you his spirit, this anointing of the spirit, you all know the truth. So I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. Now, this word anointing, it's always kind of weird because we don't use it a lot. It's not even used a lot in the New Testament. And you'll hear it more kind of in Pentecostal environments, like, we got the anointing of the Holy Ghost, right? And it's kind of like, ooh, wow, anointing sounds wild, right? Anointing, in John's idea here, is just this idea that God has implanted into you this deep and abiding thing, right? That says, yes, when you hear the truth, and says, no, when you hear the lies, right? I don't think it's this super cognitive thing, like suddenly the day you're anointed with the Spirit and truth, you're like, man, I know all systematic theology, just like, boom, at the top of my head. It's not that. No, it's this thing in your bones. It's this thing in your gut, right? Where you hear a thing, and you're like... That doesn't seem right. 
And you hear another thing like, oh, that resonates with my soul. So I think it has that kind of almost mystical, and I, I'm cautious to use that word, but I think it has kind of a mystical element to it, a mysterious element that God's like, this is just the way I secure my kids. I put this thing in them where they kind of sense the difference between truth and lies, not in every detail of everything, but in the deepest things that most matter to the Christian walk and this epic story that we are in, right? In fact, it's a promise that goes back to the Old Testament. There's a scene in Jeremiah. If you're not familiar with Jeremiah, he's a spokesman of God. He's risen up because the Babylonians are getting ready to just basically bust the skulls of the last two tribes of Israel in the land. The other 10 tribes have been blown out by the Assyrians about 100 years before. The Babylonians are bearing down, and they're going to lose. These Israelites are going to lose. They're going to lose their land. They're going to lose their shop, everything. But God makes a promise as that is coming. He says, there's going to be a new covenant. I'm going to make it with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep in them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For every one of them, from the least to the greatest, will already know me. It, it, it's so cool. Like God's like, man, you guys are terrible. At truth, Like, that was the problem of the Old Testament, man. They followed gods and idols every five seconds for hundreds of years, thousands of years. But God's like, there's going to be a day where I'm going to put this thing in you, man. It's going to be like software that just clicks on when you hear a thing, and you just know something resonates or doesn't resonate. That's my promise, this truth embedded. But this truth embedded is then mediated through a person that's also embedded, which is the Holy Spirit. Jump out of Jeremiah into Ezekiel, and God promises this as well. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I will remove that heart of stone that doesn't resonate with me, that goes against me. And I'm going to put in there instead a tender heart of flesh. He says, how am I going to do this? I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. See, this anointing, that John is pushing so hard is this confluence of spirit and truth promised in the Old Testament coming to fulfillment in the new. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we see the crossover where, where three different occasions uh, John writes these words of Jesus about this coming promise. He says, first of all, in chapter 14, the Father's going to give you another advocate, another helper, right? He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth because he lives in you and he's going to live with you. So the Spirit then is going to lead and indwell for the sake of us understanding the truth. That's chapter 14. Then you get into chapter 15. And Jesus says, I'm going to send the advocate too. So but the Father and the Son are in concert together to send the Holy Spirit in our lives so he can testify about Jesus. And so the Spirit testifies about the truth. But then in chapter 16, the Spirit comes, and he will guide you into all truth, right? So three different times, Jesus is like, man, it's good that I go away. It's good I go to the cross, and then I'm risen from the dead, and I ascend to the Father because the Spirit will come to you, and he will fulfill these promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and he's going to protect you and guide you and keep you. Which is why then in 1 John, John says in verse 26, I am writing these things to you to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. There's always going to be something. 
more than ever even, right? We got the internet, we have all this diversification, we have all this information, we have all these data points. There's plenty of ways that we can get led astray. He says, but you, you have received his Holy Spirit and he lives in you, so you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. Now, it's, he's not saying you never need teachers. Otherwise, you're like, well, let's fire Matt. We don't need him anymore. No, his point is this idea of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and what Jesus promised. There's something deep in you. You don't need to be taught the basics of what is true and what is errant. He says, for the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what he teaches you is true. It's not a lie. So just as he taught you to remain in fellowship, or just as he taught you, therefore remain in fellowship with Christ. It's like the Spirit does this, and he does this both individually in your life, but he also does it with us collectively and corporately. Both are true. And, and here's what I found in my own life. Um, the individual side is, is really, really helpful in a lot of contexts, but I think where we find protection, encouragement, continued stimulation is when we're together collectively. It's like when we're all here in this space together, we're hearing the same message, we're singing the same songs, we're breathing kind of in essence the same relational air, we're shaking hands and eating donuts and saying hi and seeing one another and hearing each other's voices and being reminded of our commonality and being reminded of what our place is in this world kind of collectively. It just holds you more secure. It's like there's something about safety in packs and every local church is like a pack where there's safety. But when you say, you know what, I don't need that so much. I can just kind of go solo. I can just go with my family over here. It can just be me and Jesus. Something decays in that. I've always found there's over the course of time decay. And I remember after all the stuff of COVID where some people just kind of got detached for a while and some are still kind of detached. I'll talk to them and they'll be like, yeah, I'm just, I know I'm not doing what I should. I know I'm not as healthy as they should be spiritually. I know I need to get back on track. And I think being in a community of faith, coming week in, week out, being reminded, encouraged, inspired, confronted, whatever it might be that happens on Sunday mornings, that is a way that the, he collectively kind of keeps us, protects us, and teaches us. Because when John is talking about he lives in you, you don't need a teacher, he is using a plural form of the word you, not a singular you, a plural you. It's like you together, the Spirit works in this way as well. Perhaps this is why John then gives his third and final thing, a reminder. And the reminder is the priority of abiding. He says, all right, there's antichrists, but you have an anointing, but the key to really living in that anointing is abiding. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and in this fellowship we will enjoy eternal life, the eternal life that he has promised to us. Now in this section, John is going to use the word abide seven times. Seven times means sit up, listen, this must be an important kind of word, right? And this word here, it doesn't just simply mean uh, remain or maintain, right? Like just stay put, abide. No, it has more of this idea of trust in, connect with, rest in these ideas. I want you to abide in all of this stuff. So trust, rest, connect with. The question is how? Well, the way John uses this word, he's flipping it all over the place. He's using it in different ways. First of all, he says, well, let what has been heard from the beginning abide in you. So just as you understand this, this is a little bit more passive. It doesn't say you abide in a thing. It says, let that thing abide in you. 
So the message that Jesus has taught, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, all the other stuff, the good news of the gospel, all of that stuff, he says, let that do a work in you. Let that be so deeply implanted into you, it naturally or organically is driving the stuff of your life. It's like you crush it all in there and let it kind of percolate. Do a thing that grows and grooms your internal person. Let that do its work inside of you. That's where it abides in you. But then equally, by extension, as we let that message abide in us, we are then to abide in the Son and the Father. So this is a little bit more active. And by abide, what do we say? Rest in, connect with, right? Trust in. Say, all right, God, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to do what your word says because that's how I abide, right? And that gives us a sense of our eternal life, abundant life that we have in Christ. But to have this message abide in us, we also have to abide in the message. That's another way abide is used. In John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, until they didn't by the end of the chapter, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, John's going all over the place with this word, right? And, and, and kind of in short form, he's saying, um, if you want the message to invest in you, you also have to invest into the message. If you want to give the, some, the Spirit something to work in in you, you need to put in you stuff the Spirit can work with, right? So there is this kind of interlocking symbiotic relationship in all of these things. And the more we then abide in it, the more it abides in us. The more we abide in Christ and God, the more Christ and God abides in us. Now, I know some of you right now are going, I'm confused, right? Abide in and abide out, and it's in you, but it's not in you. You're in it, and like, what do you do with this? Well, I gave you a diagram today, all right, because I like diagrams, right? And it's like an infinity loop, all right? But you can get the idea. So you are that person, humbly, worshipfully, there in the middle of this whole equation, and the more you invest into, abide in the Word, the Word what? Abides in you, and the more the Word's abiding in you, you abide in Christ, and the more you abide in Christ, Christ abides in you, and you know what happens? Then you abide more in the Word, and the Word more abides in you, and then you abide in Christ, and Christ abides in you, and it just keeps looping, and the cool thing is, because it's eternal life, that never ends. Did you know a billion years from now, you're not going to be like, I finally fully understand God 100%, no more need to abide. It will never be that way. An infinite God is all about infinite experience and knowledge. You will go on infinitely learning more, growing more, feeling more, abiding more as he abides in you more. So it just starts now, and it goes on to eternity. So this is why John's like, abide in all these ways. Let it abide in you in all these ways. And the more we abide, the more we grow. And the more we neglect, the more we lose traction. And so we always want to abide. Always, always, always. In fact, Jesus said it this way, and I put the picks in to help us. He says, you've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given to you. Abide in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them will produce much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. See, we want to be in that infinity loop of abiding in, being abided in. Both are true in our lives. From this, John echoes what Jesus said. Verse 28, it says, Now little children, abide. Seventh time abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming 
Nobody wants to be ashamed. Everybody wants to be competent. And therefore, what we need to, to do is to have every day abiding in him. Now, again, I know these words and John's wordplay is rough. He is like a fisherman philosopher, and he's just like a balloon that you blow up and let go in a room, and it just goes like this. It's like sometimes tr- tough to, to track John. So let me see if I can simplify what this is. And I think about marriage. So Ellen and I have been married for 32 years. And there was this particular day where we stood in front of all of our family and friends, and my mentor said these words, and we made promises. And according to kind of what we see in the Bible, that day Ellen and I became one person. We went from two to one, right? We became one flesh. That's true. But it wasn't like we say, oh, because it's happened then that one day, every other day after that doesn't matter. We're just one. No, there's this truth that while we're one, you need to abide in that oneness. You need to lean in with trust, with connecting, with dwelling. You need to make daily investments that say, I'm going to tool, tinker, care, talk, grow. Sometimes say, I I blew it. I want to get better. Uh, I want to develop. I want to evolve in this relationship. And so in one sense, you are one kind of in a, in a positional sense, but in another sense, you need to practically do oneness things. So in the same way, you know what? You're in Christ. Christ is in you. This is the nature of what it means to be saved. But at the same time, you need an everyday sense of, I'm going to keep abiding. I'm going to keep dwelling. I'm going to keep growing. I'm going to keep seeking. I'm going to see- keep trying to be more of what you want me to be. And when I don't, I'm going to try to make that right as fast as I can so I can get back into the right space, which is to abide. And so the more we make those investments, those investments reinvest into us, and it continues to feed. And from that, we can stand clear of the warnings. We can enjoy the promises. And from that, we can abide in our God. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you offer us more than just a religion. You offer us more than just an orthodoxy or a creed. Uh, What we're seeing in John is that you want something deep and profound between us and yourself. You want this relationship, this fellowship, as John talks about. And I pray that that would be our goal. More than just rule keepers or law keepers, we would be pursuers of friendship and union with you in a way that is deep and life-shaping. There may be some in this room this morning or some online with us today where you haven't started that journey with Jesus. And for you, man, we encourage you. If you sense that, you're like, man, I feel like I'm supposed to start following Jesus. I'm supposed to become a Christian today. Then then right where you're at, you can just say, Jesus, take me in. I confess my sin. I need your grace and love. I want to follow you. However you put that prayer together in the words that you use, man, he knows your heart in this. And in that, he brings you into this family, this fellowship, this community of faith meant to change the world in beautiful, loving, positive ways. If you make that your prayer today, we would like to know. There'll be a number on the screen after our eyes open up or there's a tile on our app. You can say, I chose to follow Jesus today. We would love to know about that. We're always stoked when we see that message come through. And then we want to help you on how you can continue to grow and abide and be transformed by him. Jesus, we thank you that you bring us life, you bring us light, you bring us love, you bring us truth, you give us your spirit so we can know that truth, and you keep us secure in your grace and strength. We praise you for all these things and for so much more. In your good name, amen.